0: Open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I do not currently need them, but hold on to them. You never know. Um, I'm sorry, I said chapter 3. I mean chapter 4. We'll be starting. Our text today is uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And um, our title for this particular message, our series is Homeless. What does it mean to be strangers and aliens in the world? And our um, uh, title for this particular message is uh, Arming Yourself for a War Against Sin. Arming Yourself for a War Against Sin. And uh, if you would join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would Help us to understand, help us to perceive what it is that Peter had understood, that he was communicating to the church, that you would help us cross the 2,000-year barrier, the fact that we have to break all of this up into little pieces just to grasp it instead of being able to get it in one hearing. Help us to keep it all tied together and to comprehend the message you have for your churches In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would, join me in reading 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6. And I am currently reading from the English Standard Version. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. That's, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Given an opportunity. I would gladly experience hang gliding. Jumping off the side of a cliff with some sort of glider attached to me and gliding across valleys and uh, ravines and so forth, that would be delightful to me. Uh, Given the opportunity, there is no chance I am going to skydive. (laughs) Zero. Zero interest, completely uninterested. I recognize that one might think they are similar, but for me, they are different. One is all about the experience or the feeling of falling, which I completely dislike. (laughs) And and the other is about beauty and and all that could be taken in. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe in parachutes, I I I don't have anything against parachutes. I wouldn't even mind owning a parachute, especially if I were to do more flying. But I would find little use for it. There are two ways one can relate to a parachute. I believe in them. I, I could carry one. I could roll one up and pack it with some instruction. As long as I can pick it up and put it down at will, I am perfectly good with parachutes. However, if ever one were to jump out of a plane, whether out of necessity or for some uh, sick sense of need for adrenaline rush, uh, they must relate to it in a very different way. You don't decide midair that the straps are uncomfortable and take it off. You must believe in it in a very different way than I believe in them. In the previous verses that we Closed with last week and that lead into our, our, our text this week that, that begins with a since therefore so you need to remember what, what we were since therefore referring to uh, in those verses Peter connects the story of Noah and Christ through our union with Jesus in his death burial resurrection and ascension Christ is our ark of rescue you remember that from last week Christ is our ark of rescue, who will carry us safely through the waters of judgment in the baptismal waters to the presence of God, symbolized in the baptismal waters. An ark and a cruise ship are two very different experiences. Noah was not on a cruise ship, let's be clear, but an ark, a stinky, humid, floating box, lacking aesthetic beauty. Arks are only appealing when a catastrophic flood is coming. An ark is anything but a cruise ship. Too often, preachers try to sell Jesus as if they're inviting you on a cruise. They are not. They are saving you from a catastrophic judgment. There is a vast difference. We must relate to Christ like an ark, that if we depart from it, we perish not like a cruise ship that allows us on and off at various ports of call and makes sure that our every comfort is met. We must relate to Christ as we would a parachute when jumping from a plane, not when comfortably on the ground, able to pick it up or set it down at will. No, that is not how we are to relate to Christ. To be joined to Christ in baptism, then, it, it means that we are united to Him in every way, including His sufferings. And that gets to the point of today's text. In our battle with evil, listen, in our battle with evil, we can either sin or we can suffer, but we can't do both. In our battle with evil, we can either sin or we can suffer, but we can't do both. Let me explain. In our battle with evil, we can sin or we can suffer with Christ. That's the suffering that Peter is referring to. Enter into His sufferings. But we can't do both. If we're joined to Christ, I I think you know the only option then is to suffer. We can't set the parachute down. We can't jump off the ark for a swim, a little leisure time. It's not really there for us. So we're going to explore our text under three headings. The first, be armed with the inside of Jesus. The second, understand the heart of the conflict. And the third, hope in the justice of God. Be armed with the insight of Jesus, understand the heart of the conflict, hope in the justice of God. If you would join me under that first heading, be armed with the insight of Jesus. And if you would read with me again verse 1 of our text. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with, in the, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It's important to recall some of the previous scenes. You might say that the last line of verse 1, where it says, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that that line is hyperlinked to these verses I'm about to recall from our previous scenes. First of all, Peter instructs that in our various contexts, if you would just drop back a few messages, that we must, but rather to do good... In the middle of that section, chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, and this is a hyperlinked text to the one we're in today. You you look here, you need to jump back there and see how they're connected. Peter sets forth Christ in his suffering as a model that we must follow. Peter's emphasis is on how Christ committed no sin. Indeed, or tongue, in response to evil. He committed no sin. He did not sin in response to evil. Instead, he entrusted himself to God and did what? Suffered. He chose to suffer rather than to retaliate with sin. He suffered. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 11, or through 11, Peter picks up on the teaching first of the Sermon on the Mount and then from Psalm 34. And this, he, he begins from ideas from the Sermon on the Mount Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For, now he jumps to Psalm 34, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep or cease his tongue from evil. It's that same word in our verse today. Whoever suffers has ceased from sin. It's that same verb. And so here we have it. He must cease his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him, or he must, that one must seek peace and pursue it. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's a good way of putting it, to be more specific. To arm ourselves is to weaponize ourselves. This is military language. It's a military metaphor. He's not literally telling you to pick up guns, by the way. In fact, quite the opposite, as we will see. To arm ourselves is to weaponize ourselves. Arming ourselves requires that we first do what? Disarm ourselves from the other kinds of weapons that we might be using currently. Peter has been telling us already in this letter to disarm ourselves from these things. And now he's telling us what to arm ourselves with. If not the weapons of hatred or violence or malice or slander, weapons of tongue and deed that he's been addressing that we need to cease from doing throughout this epistle. If not those, then what weapons are we to be armed with? We're to be armed with an insight. In order to understand that insight, let me, let me jump over to Paul for a moment where he talks about the, the weapons that we are to carry. You know, here Peter says, weaponize yourself. It's the root, the verbal form of what Paul refers to as weapons. Same word in, in, in all these cases, verbal versus noun though, and in, in between Peter and Paul. But note, the language of Romans 6.13, do not present your members to sin as literally weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been uh, brought from death to life and your members to God as, again, weapons of righteousness. It's the same word I'm going to be using for weapons that, that that is in all these verses in, in the original text, always the same word, Romans 13, verse 10 and 12, love does not does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor or the weapons of light. Be armed with the weapons of light, you might say. And then the next two may be the most relevant to our text because they begin to explain what these weapons are more specifically. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, Paul groups his sufferings, get this, he he talks about both his sufferings and his righteous responses together as the same kind of thing. Notice that as we read. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, All those come under the category of suffering, right? But notice he, he just keeps going. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. And now he sums all of that up. With the weapons of righteousness in the right hand and for the left. Or for the right hand and for the left. With the weapons of righteousness... For the right hand and for the left. Weapons of righteousness then is a summary statement for all that had preceded. The sufferings and the gentle, pure, kind, loving actions are our weapons of righteousness. Paul didn't leave the left hand for fleshly weapons either. Notice his right hand. And just in case you thought you could keep those old kinds of slanderous weapons, malice, hatred, bickering. If you keep them over here, you know, I'm going to try this one. If they don't work, I'll go back to these. These. No, right hand and the left. And then in 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons, there it is again, of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Arm yourselves, Peter says, with the same way of thinking, same as what? As Jesus had when he suffered. You you might say, maybe more particularly, arm yourself with this same insight that Christ had, this same perspective that Christ had. What is this insight? In what sense can an insight weaponize us? to put it another way, because we're supposed to arm ourselves with it, so in what sense can an insight weaponize us? Do I have, are there any Trekkies in the audience? I mean, any, got, got a few Trekkies back here? Okay. As a child, I, I fed on Star Trek in the afternoons after school just because, well, we did. That's what you did in that era, and, and so we did. And in an original series Star Trek episode titled The Day of the Dove, The the Starship Enterprise, if you're not familiar with this show, that's the main spaceship that everybody goes around on, that Kirk is the captain of, Uh, it receives a distress call from a human colony in some distant planet, so they take off heading for that distant planet, arriving to find no signs of any habitation. It's like nobody's inhabited this place, but why were we called here? We had this human voice telling us that they needed our help. So what's going on? So Kirk leads a team down to the surface only to be surrounded by Klingons who had likewise similarly been drawn to the planet for the, by the same method. Well, if you're familiar with the Klingons, I mean, they were, you know, back in the day they were like the Russians. I mean, you know, they had everything about them that made you shudder in fear. They were designed to uh, elicit that fear that humans have about anything that is other or strange. That's our natural instinct. A little side note. So, it's just a tidbit of interest. The the root for the word hospital or hospitality and the word hostility in etymology are the same. You see, there are two different ways we can respond to a stranger. Either we're hospitable or we're hostile. And that's a choice we all have to make. And, And, of course, our natural instinct after the fall is hostility. Well... Conflict ensues immediately, (laughs) and and it turns out, as they go along, Spock figures this out, that, that what had drawn them was a mass of pure energy, which feeds, listen, it feeds off of violence and hatred. The entity is even able to implant false memories in the minds of the people in order to trigger aggression. Chekhov is getting into a fight to the death because this guy had done something evil to his brother, but he didn't even have a brother. But he had this memory of this guy doing something to his brother. The only path to victory is for Captain Kirk to uh, convince the Klingon commander, Kang, of all this. Kirk finally, believe it or not, succeeds, as crazy as it sounded to him. And each of them, the two respective commanders, orders their crews to lay down their arms. To starve the entity, they then encourage their crews to act Joy, uh, jovially, happy, celebrating with each other, laugh out loud together, and finally the entity fades and leaves the ship and, 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 and everything, and they're, they're free, and everybody can go. Now that works nicely. If everyone will lay down their weapons and stop fighting on the count of three, you know, it's a bit like an armistice, a temporary suspension of hostilities by the agreement of the warring parties. "Hey, it's, it's Christmas, we're going to. We're going to stop hostilities, you know. It's Ramadan. We're going to stop hostilities. On the count of one, two, three. Okay, stop. Everybody on two fires, right? But three, you know, we stop. Kirk never thought about getting the crew to stop while the Klingons were still hostile. In theory, though, that... Had he told his crew to stop fighting and suffer their onslaught without retaliation, it would have actually, well, they would have ceased hostility and it would have eventually starved the mass of energy. What God knows and expresses right after the flood has receded and the ark has landed and Noah and they come out of the ark, they're offering offerings to God, It will be only evil all his days. Peace will never be achieved by mere human effort until the man, Christ Jesus, comes and establishes peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus absorbs both the wrath of humanity against God and the curse which humanity brought upon itself in its rejection of God before anyone else laid down their hostilities. As long as we are in the realm of the flesh, there is no armistice, mutually agreed peace. No, rather, we suffer as we lay down our arms. Now, just as the insight that Kirk had and Spock had into how this massive energy fed on strife, it changed everything, in real life, Jesus' insight changes everything. What is this insight that Jesus had? What is the insight? Finding but blessing, appearing to be like sheep led to the slaughter, to borrow an image from elsewhere in Scripture. That these are a powerful response to evil. That a response that enters into evil itself only increases the evil, it doesn't decrease it. But that these responses of doing good and not retaliating actually decrease evil. They, They stop, as it were, the cycle of sin because... Why? Because the one who suffers ceases from sin. You don't have to wait for an armistice. You can suffer and stop it that way too. What is this insight? It is that the one who suffers in the flesh, which is what Christ did, instead of returning evil for evil, has ceased from sin. Just as Christ did not sin when He was suffering and going to the cross and, and hanging there. He did not sin. Instead of continuing the cycle of sin and hatred, it stops with us, the church. We are not going to return evil for evil. We will suffer loss instead. Paul wrote the Corinthians because they were dragging one another into court. He said it was evidence that they were already defeated, that they had lost the war. He asked, why not rather suffer wrong?" Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, I would imagine most of us, if he asked us, we could come up with a whole list of reasons why not. Well, because of what they did to me. Did you know that? I mean, it's just not right that. And, and we, had a, we, we could come up with an entire list of reasons why not rather be wrong. I, I can tell you why not rather be wrong. But Paul asked that question. Why would he say that? Wasn't he for the people? Surely you've heard that commercial only a thousand times a week. Poor the people. Paul knew that when you suffer the wrong and choose to be defrauded, you, you cease from sin, even if the other party doesn't. He valued that. He understood that when we cease from sin, we are making progress in the war on sin. Peter has described our response to evil, not only negatively, do not return evil for evil, cease your tongue from evil, all the things you don't need to do negatively, but also positively. In in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, by doing good, you should silence the ignorance of unthinking people. Verse 17, honor everyone. Verse 18, be subordinate with all respect. uh, Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, be subordinate... uh, 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 Subordinate yourselves or be subordinate that you might uh, be uh, be, that they might be won by your respectful and pure conduct. Uh, Chapter three, verse four, be adorned with a gentle and quiet spirit. Verse seven, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her as with one who has a weaker position. Uh, Summarizing it all, then in verse eight, he says, but the goal for everyone is unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderheartedness, humility. A lot of positive things that we arm ourselves with in this war. Amen? Jonathan Edwards rightly offered that gentleness, what he called a lamb-like, dove-like spirit, is not an optional extra, but instead is the true and distinguishing disposition of the hearts of Christians. You see, it's not just a personality trait. Well, you know, some people are gentle. That's just not my personality. Right, because you're a sinner. <laughs> I, got, I got you there. I, I Check that. I, and believe me, I fully understand. I mean, <laughs> familiar with that. But it's what we're called to. To be like Christ. Now, that image that Edwards uses of being lamb-like brings to mind that expression I referred to earlier. Or... <laughs> Similar in Scripture, but like a lamb to the slaughter, like sheep to be slaughtered. Remember what Paul asked and then answered about this? He said this, this is Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What does he say? No. In all these things. And how we have that in almost all our translations. We are what? More than conquerors. The other night I was reading this. And I thought let me just look at the Greek text. Because that's a curious phrase. And I discovered something. My wife was sitting there and I was like you got to hear this. That isn't a predicate nominative in in the Greek language, like, in all these things, you're winners. No, it's not what it is. It's a verb. In all these things, you are being more than victorious. Now, that's a big difference. Every now and then, these things make a significant difference. Paul is not saying, despite all of these things, you're still winners and conquerors. That has a theology all its own. He is saying, in all of these things, you are being victorious. These are actually weapons of war that are helping you conquer. And believe me, I get it, that's backward thinking to human ways. It's no wonder we want to kind of push in a different direction. In all these things, we are being completely victorious or more than victorious, however you want to read it, through him who loved us, through him, in him, joined to him who loved us. John Perkins, a gospel minister and civil rights leader, believes that the best way and only way to conquer outrage is with what he calls a love that trumps hate. A love that trumps hate. And he says this yielding to God's will will be hard, or can be, yielding to God's will can be hard. And sometimes it really hurts, but it always brings peace. You have to be a bit of a dreamer to imagine a world where love trumps hate, he said. But I don't think being a dreamer is all that bad. When we enter into Christ's sufferings, we are being completely victorious. More than victorious. When when Peter says that the one who suffers has ceased from sin, he is not saying that the one who suffers will never sin again. But that he has ceased from sin in that moment by entering into Christ's sufferings. When we do that, we are being completely victorious guaranteed by the resurrection. How so? How is it that we're being victorious? By having the insight of Jesus, the same insight that He had, about what is really happening. You see, in the cross, it looked like Jesus was being defeated, that all of God's plans for Him to be the Messiah had come to an end. But what was really happening was entirely Different. And we need to have the insight that sees that. Not just in Jesus, but then also in a much smaller way in what? Our own lives as we enter into his suffering. If you want to call having the insight or the perspective of Jesus being a dreamer, that's fine with me as long as you remember that Joseph was a dreamer. And know a little bit about how those dreams turned out. Now this leads to my second point. By the way, I'm keenly aware that my first point, it was supposed to be more than half the sermon. So don't worry. We're good. I know some of you are worried like, oh, he's only on point two. It's okay. Understand the heart of the conflict. Look at verses two through four with me. So as to live for the rest of the time, In the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. We are involved... In a conflict between the desires of the flesh of humanity and the desires of God for humanity. Between the desires of the flesh in humanity and the desires of God for humanity. God's will is peace and justice and right living. God has a, a plan to provide. I mean, go back to the Garden of Eden. That's the world that God willed for his people. But Human flesh has another will, and that's to enslave and to to hurt and to harm and to do violence. Passions to self-indulge. We are in a war, a conflict between the desires of the flesh of humanity and the desires of God for humanity. When we arm ourselves with the same insight that Christ had, we gain a strategic advantage in the war itself. This insight empowers us to live the rest of our time in the flesh not striving to satisfy human passions but for the pure passions of God. When Peter what Peter says next strikes me as both humorous at one level at least in the way the English way it's worded there just strikes me as humorous and seems unexpected. What what strikes me as humorous is when he says effectively, you've spent enough time krausing about, we have better things to do now, as if you needed to spend a certain amount of time krausing about. I mean, some of you might wonder if, if you individually have actually spent enough time, but Peter is speaking to this group, and he's not concerned about what any one individual did, but he's speaking and saying, you guys, as a whole, you've done enough of that. I mean, like, you know, some of you get a lot more, Pete, but you know, others, you know, maybe you can pay them a lot so bad. But no, he just said, you've done enough of that. But maybe I think, it, you know, it's a little more slang, but it might better catch the sense of what's going on here if we just said, enough of that! You've already wasted too much time accomplishing the will of evil. That's the point that he's driving at. Enough of that. And then what's unexpected? What's unexpected for me is that Peter has been focused since chapter 2, verse 11, almost exclusively on, uh, not, not, uh, on behaviors like malice, hatred, retaliation, slander, reviling others. Not doing these best. But what Peter and his audience understood is the direct connection between these acts of indulgence and unrestrained pursuit of our desires and the worship of idols, the false gods of, their, uh, of our own making, which will lead us to violence and hatred and, and all the other things. They're, they're intricately tied together. If we give ourselves over, soul and body to lustful desires and indulgence, perceiving that they will bring us happiness and fulfillment, we will never give ourselves to joining in the sufferings of Christ instead of returning evil for evil. I mean, just on a simple level, you can understand, if my life becomes all about how much pleasure I can feel and find, it will never be about joining the sufferings of Christ. Those are completely polar opposites. But it's a deeper connection than even that. And I think we can see it in the modern debate over abortion. Think with me for a moment. Most pro-life advocates cannot understand why people can't see what seems so obvious to them that this is killing a child. However, the problem lies in what is not always obvious. Most abortion rights advocates are not concerned with whether it is a baby or a lump of cells. That really matters nothing to them. Nor are they with the health of the woman. That really has never been their concern either. They're concerned with one simple thing. Equality. Let me explain. Abortion rights are necessary if women are to achieve full equality with men. By the way, I'm Being a little satirical here, so just bear with me. But this is, in fact, the reality. They are necessary if women are to achieve achieve full equality with men. Men, for millennia, have demonstrated the ability to live as sexually promiscuous as they desire and take no responsibility for it. It has no direct impact on their lives. Rather than attempting to change the obvious flaw in their character, they have chosen to say that women should also have the ability to be just as foolish, to live sexually promiscuous lives and do as they want and take no responsibility for it. Without any direct impact on their lives. That is what is at the core of the debate. And they'll even write about it. It is in their teachings and instructions. I mean, this is what is important to them. Because you can't have equality if we can't be just as irresponsible as they are. Of course, it's a lie because the impact of abortion is astronomical. But it does graphically illustrate how the pursuit of human desires leads to the violence of killing a child. Anyone who's experienced abortion knows that it is a violent act. It also illustrates the cycle of sin. The unrestrained behavior of men has provoked unrestrained behavior in women. Sin begets sin until someone chooses to suffer with Christ rather than sin. What am I going to do? Well, for starters, let's start with how do I suffer with Christ in this moment instead of retaliate to circumstances I do not like and stop the cycle of sin. Now listen, what's interesting is Peter says to the churches and the saints in these churches, you've spent enough time doing that. See, if you've spent more than enough time doing that, There's forgiveness available in entrance into the church through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. It's important that we remember that. Grace is available in Jesus Christ. We know from previous verses that our good behavior may cause people to be won over. Even our suffering may cause people to be won over. But it also paints a target on our foreheads, according to verse 4. Peter says, With respect to this, they they are surprised, shocked when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. The nations, the Gentiles, the peoples, which are, are ruled by the principalities and powers, are bothered by our lack of participation in their flood of debauchery, their flood of reckless abandoned, to sensual indulgence. We are allowed to believe as we want, don't get me wrong, so long as we will still join in celebrating their gods. And if we don't, they get uncomfortable with us and malign us. It's interesting, the early church... Uh, Was frequently referred to as being atheists, um, not believing in God, simply because they only believed in one God, and that just seems so absurd. You know, therefore, you believe in your God. We don't care, but you better start worshiping ours too, or He might get mad at us. And (laughs) don't be surprised that the world acts as if you are a stranger an alien, and starts maligning you when you don't join them. Just make sure it is for the right reasons that they think you're a stranger. Not because you actually really are acting like something really strange, but rather because you're following Christ. Then rejoice that you're counted worthy of suffering for Christ's cause. Douglas Haring in his commentary notes that in the very act of refusing to give our bodies to the rulers of this age, we arm ourselves with the intent to suffer. I can't help but think that when Peter here refers to the world's reckless abandon to sensual indulgence as a flood of debauchery, it is an allusion, I think, to the flood of judgment spoken of in the the end of chapter 3. One flood answers the other. At the heart of the conflict, there is a war of desires passions, which explains the hatred often spewed toward Christians. But there is a certain hope awaiting us. And that leads to the third point, which is hope in the justice of God. Read with me verses 5 and 6 again. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. But they will give an account, he says. Theirs is not the final word. They may malign you. They may falsely accuse you. They may even hand you over to, be, to, to courts, to rulers, so that you are flogged. But theirs is not the final word. Word. There is one who stands ready to judge the living ones and the dead ones. They will give an account to the one who is ready. And it's interesting, back in chapter 3, verse 15, just 12 verses earlier, that the Christians were told that we need to always be ready or prepared, same word, to explain our hope. Here, we are told that God is prepared, standing ready, to judge our accusers. God's judgment and our hope are intricately tied together. God's judgment and our hope are intricately tied together. In chapter 4, in verse 7, so it's just the very next verse at the end of our text, next week's verse, we will be told there that the end of everything is close at hand. Listen, God is not distant from our troubles and suffering, disinterested in our peril. No, He is near and ready to rectify everything as the perfect judge of all things. Amen? Believers in Asia Minor who were experiencing suffering either personally or as a community because if one suffers then everyone suffers. It's not as if everybody in these churches were out suffering. The reality was is that they took a stand in how they were going to live but certain ones were somehow singled out for particular suffering, even martyrdom. But if one of them suffers then we all suffer if we join in with them and, 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 and grieve with those who grieve. Those believers may well have wondered why a gospel of salvation was of any value if they were not saved from the peril of death itself. Death is not the final word, which is why the gospel was preached to them. For the gospel readied those brothers and sisters who died for the day of judgment. God will set everything right, truly right, true justice. Even though they were judged according to the human realm of flesh as deserving death, they are judged as worthy of living in the world, being remade by God's Spirit, the realm of the new creation. The realm in which we live according to the guidance of God's Spirit. The new creation is where our inheritance is, an inheritance which we are told in chapter one cannot be touched by the rulers of the power of this this age, can't be corrupted, can in no way be affected. It cannot be taken away from us, even by death. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, that's what's called a merism, meaning everyone. You know, if somebody searches high and low, we don't ask, but did you check the middle? We know that means everywhere, right? High and low, that's everywhere. It's, It's high, it's low, it's everything in between. It's a marism. In other words, to judge the living and the dead, there's not some other group of people left out of that. I can't help but wonder, though, if in this context, it isn't also alluding to something more specific. God stands ready at hand to judge the living ones, which they were the ones that, maybe put to death the other ones, the ones who presume to rule over and preside in this life, and the dead ones, the ones that they killed. He'll be the judge of both. It'll get rectified. It'll get sorted out, if you will. He stands ready to judge the apparent victors in the eyes of the world and the apparent losers. And we will in fact discover, and this is back to the insight that we need to have, that in fact... The apparent losers are the winners. God's justice is our sure hope. Those who oppose God and His people don't know that the present evil age, along with all its desires, has been invaded by Jesus the King, defeated by His suffering, and is passing away. Nor do they understand the very thing that is our sure hope that the new creation with its entirely new way of living has already begun in the resurrection, is coming more and more, and will one day come fully when He returns. Amen? A couple of questions by way of closing. How can this new insight, how can these truths that we've been exploring change the cycle of sin in your life? How can they change the cycle of sin in your marriage? I don't know if you guys are anything like Donna and I, but over the years we've had times where we get in this crazy pattern, this cycle of sinning against each other, and after a week or so you begin to realize this is stupid. (laughs) Like, Plain old idiotic. Why did? When did it start exactly? How did? It, and you don't even remember, but you suddenly realize that something's been building. You know, it starts almost unnoticeably, and then it just keeps. And, and it's like, until what? Explosion. And then it's like, what if I stop? What if I stop? Thankfully, we've. Learned in the last many years that we can stop and we haven't entered into those cycles, which is I'm so grateful for in recent times. And if we do, they're very short lived. Well, with your teenage or even adult kids, how can these truths change those relationships? Can you stop? Sin, can you cease from sin yourself? How will that affect what is going on? If you arm yourself with these insights, what about with your neighbors? Listen, there's no guarantee that you won't be maligned, but remember in all these things we are being more than victorious. Or what if they just walk all over me? We are being more than victorious. And then finally, and this is for all of us, are you clinging to Christ as your ark of rescue? Or are you clinging to Christ as some kind of cruise liner? One is, will save us from the judgment, and the other will not. Let me plead with you to cling to Christ as your ark of rescue. Or as you would a parachute if you are actually dropping out of a plane in the very moment. (laughs) Don't let go. Even if it's uncomfortable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to disarm ourselves of the weapons we are so accustomed to using at one another, toward others, and be rearmed with this new insight and all the weapons of righteousness that it puts in our hands. Sufferings, endurance, all the things like that, as well as kindness and goodness and a gentle spirit. And Lord, as far as we are concerned, may we be those who in the war, we can do one or we can do the other, but we cannot do both. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand.